we did GOTV on the Virginia election. At the end of the day, we win 14 out of 15 seats and we lost seat number 15 by one vote. Whenever people foolishly utter the lines, my vote doesn't matter. It's like the hackles go up. We lost control of the Virginia House of Delegates by one vote. Would you have been that vote? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Andrea Miller of the Center for Common Ground. Andrea is an election turnout strategist who moved from early childhood education into politics, leading to work organizing with Move On and Kucinich for President. Andrea is the executive director of People Demanding Action and Advocacy Group. She's designed and deployed virtual phone banks for outreach to underrepresented voters in Virginia, Alabama, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. She's the former co-executive director of Progressive Democrats of America and was the Democratic nominee in 2008 for the House of Representatives in Virginia's 4th Congressional District. She's got a lot to say. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Andrea Miller. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Andrea, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Oh, all right. Oh, this will be fun. I'm Andrea Miller, originally born and raised in Chicago. I grew up with two uncles who were aldermen in the Daily Machine. So I watched my two uncles turn out the black vote from the time that I was probably four years old. What did they have to do to turn out the vote? Well, number one, they had to provide people rights to the polls. So my father being the baby brother, it was his job to go and pick up whomever and take them to the polls. And there would periodically be interesting little tidbits it's like, all right, now you're going to go pick up Aunt May, take her to vote, drop her off. Then you should be able to pick up Uncle Boost out by the liquor store, get him a bottle. He doesn't get the bottle till after he votes. I know that Chicago politics and an alderman is actually a pretty big deal there. It's not like a smaller city. What else did you learn about politics? 
I learned early on that Chicago politics, now again, remember, this is the 60s. We're going to say it's very different now. There were two things that my mother told me about elections in Chicago. She said, number one, there is no election run in Chicago where Mayor Daley doesn't know who won before the first vote is cast. Which was him. (laughs) Yes, yes. yes. Chicago was Richard J. Daley's town. The other thing that one of my uncles told me, and I don't remember whether it was Uncle Sam or Uncle Joe, was it doesn't really matter what your candidate says they do or they don't believe. He who is going to win the election is the person who turns out their voters. And I never forgot that. Pretty basic, isn't it? It's all about turnout. It's a pretty pragmatic view of politics, I have to say, which is interesting because scanning your biography, I'm guessing you're a little more of an idealist. I'm a pragmatic idealist. Yeah. What does that mean to you? Well, what that means is that early on in my professional career, I worked with operating engineers. I have always loved efficiency. Efficiency is really my religion. So when it comes to politics, I've kind of married the two sides of who I am. Someone who can be idealistic in what I believe, but I'm going to bring that reality and pragmatism into this is what we're going to need to do to accomplish it. So I did that when I was lobbying on Capitol Hill. I was in sales for a while. The number one rule of sales, people do things for their reasons, not yours. So find out what their reasons are. So when I would go to the Hill, I would initially spend an equal amount of time talking to Republicans as I did to Democrats, because I needed to understand how they felt about things. And my son, who is a Republican, told me a number of years ago, he said, you know, he said, progressives and conservatives, we agree on a lot more than people think. You just come at us wrong. So I spent time with Republicans learning how do I present some very progressive ideas to people who are conservative. Now, this is before they went totally off the rails. I mean, one of my favorite people in Congress back in the day was Walter Jones. Anytime I had a new piece of legislation, I would always go and see Walter because Walter would tell me, I can't vote for that. No. Or he would say, tell me more. 
it sounds like it could be useful and helpful. Explain it to me. And that was when I really learned that lobbying is sales, sales is lobbying. And when you talk to electeds or anybody with the power to do what you want, you need to make sure you are selling what they want to buy. Makes sense. I know that you went to Northwestern for your undergraduate and your master's. And my graduate, yes. Yes. And you didn't study politics there. What was happening with you at that point in your life? My undergraduate and graduate degrees are in early childhood education. So what that means is I can take a very, very, very complex idea and bring it down to grade school level. Everything that I ever wrote when I was writing letters for legislators on the Hill, we always wrote at roughly the seventh grade level with the idea being that many people who are elected, they are not lawyers. They're all manner of things come from all walks of life. So again, when you are presenting a new concept or an old concept, but in a new way, you better make it simple and straightforward. In the beginning of your career, did you go on to work in childhood education or did you come back to politics? What was that path? It was a very strange path. I went to high school. I graduated as a junior. I didn't intend to, but I accidentally did. Um, There were a group of us, Northwestern, back in the early 70s, had an early entrance program. Well, actually, they kind of did and they kind of didn't. They had a very strong list of your academic requirements to get into Northwestern. There were a group of 10 of us, all juniors. Eleanor was a sophomore. And we all met or exceeded Northwestern's entrance requirements. They said, no, no, you you can't come. You didn't graduate from high school. At the time, there was nothing written that said you had to be a high school graduate. Anyway, we sued Northwestern University. Wow. Ten of us, high school students. <laughs> Howie's dad was a Chicago big corporate wood paneled office, shows up on Saturday in suit pants, suspenders, and tie. He was that kind of attorney. We brought him all our material. He listened to us. And he let us know the following Monday or Tuesday that he was willing to take our case. One of the things that he liked about us was we were very, very, very articulate. And so he chose me and Eli. He wanted a boy and a girl. Eli was Jewish, I was Black, to kind of represent the new young people who wanted to excel. Anyway, 
when my school found out I was involved in a lawsuit. They mailed me my diploma in August, and I could no longer be part of the suit because I was a high school graduate. Were you happy or sad about that? Oh, I cried for three days. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I was loving the lawsuit. <laughs> so you made it through high school a year early and you proceeded to Northwestern. Yes. And, and, and then you got in, interested in the childhood development. And then, uh, yes. What did you do afterwards? <laughs> I had a weird time when I was at Northwestern. Oh, and I, I want to ask you first did they win that lawsuit? Did they? Yes, they let us. Uh, they dropped it, but they let us in. They put basically a gag order on us for, I think it was like three, five years or something. So no one else would do it? <laughs> oh, no one else would do it, but they watched us and formed the basis of their early entrance program. Okay, cool. Based on the nine of us. Anyway, I got there. I'd gone to Northwestern in the summer, discovered the Cherub program and the real school had absolutely nothing in common. I went back to the dean and I said, now, again, remember, this is the very beginnings of when we're coming up with individual education plans, IEPs. And I said, look, I am in this school because I already know how to learn. I came here to learn how to teach. So this is what I propose. I went back to my old grade school and I became a student teacher and I did that for an entire year. I said, I will show up, take all the tests, anything that you require me to do. I'll do all the readings, but I don't need to be here. I want to be in a classroom. And that was an amazing part of my life where I learned to really empower children. How long did you do that? And why did you leave that? Well, as a student teacher, you're not making any money. And the school where I was working, I had been a student there. So they, and the school was about to close. They were in dire financial straits, private Catholic school. So I came in with a lot of the ideas, British infant school model that we had studied over the summer. And I remember the principal looking at me and saying, well, nothing else has worked. So why shouldn't we try your idea? That school survived another 10 years. Anyway, when I started looking at the real world of education where I would actually get paid, no one was going to allow me to do what I had done at that school. I was just not going to teach in the public school system. So I ended up becoming a uh, executive secretary, no, legal secretary first. 
So I went back. Oh, <laughs> while I was in Northwestern as a student, I had an opportunity to get a good job, well-paying as a secretary at the School of Law. But I never told the people at the School of Law that I was actually enrolled in the School of Education, School of Law, City of Chicago, School of Education, Evanston Campus. We don't have electronic records back in those days. If I had applied as a student, I would, of course, be subject to student wages. <laughs> you you figured that one out. <laughs> Again, I'm very pragmatic. Sure. When do you make the change from education to politics? I didn't really go back to politics until... 2007, my life just got very, very traditional. I got married. I had children. I was raising children. Oh, yes. It was, I remember the birth of moveon.org. I was a corporate trainer and corporations found me interesting because of the fact that I knew how to take the very complex and make it very, very simple. I was in Maryland by that time. I ended up going back and teaching at Johns Hopkins, but I originally started at Howard Community College, which at the time was literally right around the corner from where I lived. So sounds like a fairly diverse and lengthy career before politics. Was what brought you back into politics running for office? Because I know you ran for Congress. No, it was the birth of moveon.org and the, the impeachment of Bill Clinton. So that's 1998, give or take. Did you join MoveOn? Yes, yes. I, I joined MoveOn. I probably went to work for them around 2006. I don't even remember why. I might have seen something online that they were looking uh, for volunteers, for local organizers. My kids were old enough and I decided I wanted to do that. And I very quickly became a regional organizer and had an opportunity because of my education background to work with them on course development. So move on in the 2006, 2007, and probably even into 2008, they were doing lobby training. I'd never lobbied before, but again, it's sales. I'd been in sales. You're selling legislation, just a different kind of product. You don't get a widget, you get a bill passed. Now I get it. Volunteer recruitment. I had been very good at recruiting volunteers. Somewhere along the way, we missed that when I was in seventh grade, I'd gone to this very radical Catholic church 
and they had brought Cesar Chavez in to do organizing training for high school and college students. And I had asked the assistant pastor, my girlfriend and I could attend. I was in seventh grade, she was in eighth. He was like, okay, just don't embarrass me. So I got my original organizing training from Cesar Chavez. That's amazing. So again, during the great boycott. How was he as a trainer? It was great. Yeah. I mean, do I remember very much about it? No, but I remember the activities that I did. When I was student teaching, the school is pretty radical. When I was student teaching, every weekend I would be out at, well, it wasn't truly a picket line. It was like me and two of my grade school kids. Now, remember, I'm basically teaching the equivalent of grades one through four. So I'm teaching young children. I'm an organist. I was trained to be a classical pianist. I became the church organist when I was 12. The lead organist developed cancer. He was very, very ill. I had been substituting for him. And then he fought for me to get the position of organist because he said she's been doing the job for eight months. Why are we worried about her age? I'm old enough, but I have cancer. You have someone who is healthy and able to do the job, wants to do the job. What are we doing here? It seems like it's your nature not to shy away from the spotlight or from leadership. Ah, uh, yes. When I was young, when I would see a void, I would just step up, step in and say, all right, we're going to do this. And people would follow and they'd go, okay. Tell me about running for Congress. Why did you do that? That's back in 2008. Oh, you're going to love this. I was running Dennis Kucinich's presidential campaign in late 2007, whenever he declared. And um, you were running it, it nationally or in a... Uh, I was running the campaign in Virginia. I'd moved to Virginia by then. And Virginia required 10,000 signatures. So we got the 10,000 signatures. The Democratic Party in 2008 was very, very progressive-minded. They circulated petitions that had all the Democratic candidates on it. So that was pretty cool. And then I went out and I had built a nice list of people all around the Commonwealth who were willing to gather signatures, and we got Dennis on the ballot. A friend of mine approached me, and he asked me if I was going to run for Congress. At the time, I was in the 4th Congressional District, and normally the congressmen who held the seat there were never any Democratic challengers. There would be an independent. There was no Democrat. I'm not really a Democrat. I'm like way to the left. I'm something else. 
So anyway, I said, well, you know, I would consider it, but unfortunately I'm running Dennis's campaign. There's no way I can do both. So the day that Dennis dropped out of the race, David called me again and he goes, well, Dennis isn't running. So I guess you will be filing your paperwork to run for Congress. And I thought, Yes, I guess I will. How was that experience? That was a tough district. No, there was no reason for Democrats to not run. No, Democrats were lazy and silly. The district was not that tough. Virginia is a very rural state. Normally, we depend on Northern Virginia to save us from ourselves. But we've got some big counties Chesterfield County, the third largest county in the Commonwealth, was the anchor on the west side. And then it went all the way to the ocean side. Chesapeake was the anchor on the other side. And then there were a lot of small rural towns in between, towns that my mother would describe as a one-horse town and the horse left. (laughs) But I loved those folks. So I was a corporate trainer then. I was doing emergency management IT. I had written the book on how you did that. So I worked maybe eight, 12 days a month. So I had plenty of time to campaign. I raised $37,000 for that campaign. 20,000 of it was mine. By the time the race was over, I had gotten 40.7% of the vote. I did better in Chesterfield County when we looked at vote percentages than Barack Obama. And I did not have Barack Obama's money. But again, I'm in a rural district. Where do rural people go? You can't door knock rule. They're all going to show up at their county fairs. So I would be there when they opened the door at the county fair. I printed my own literature. I wrote it. I printed. I designed it. I was my own campaign manager. I had a photographer. We would stand in front of our table and I would just say, hi, I'm Andrea Miller. I'm running for Congress. What is important to you and what would you like your representative in D.C. to say for you? And people have never met anybody who said that. And a lot of people walked away. But after a while, they'd come back and they would say, are you serious? And we would get into these really deep conversations. Now, I had lived in Virginia since June of 2006. I am on the ballot in November of 2008. I have raised $37,000. The man who beat me is the incumbent with $985,000. Yeah, it doesn't seem entirely fair. election cycles later, he was defeated. Yeah. 
He was getting consistently 60% of the vote until 2016, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What did that lead to for you? I mean, you, when you'd go out on a limb and run for office, what came of that? Oh, well, I met so many people who were in the district and a number of them came and were very excited about me running in 2010. The party came to me and asked me not to run. There was a doctor that they wanted to run. He had probably made a nice donation and he actually walked around saying things like he was running for Congress because he thought his wife would be a great wife of a member of Congress. He did not do nearly as well as I did. Did you not run against him in the primary because you were asked not to? Yes. I originally said I was going to run. The chair of my Democratic committee recruited this man to run against me. Politics in Virginia can be very, very interesting. Everywhere. What was the next big political thing for you? I decided in 2010 that, all right, if I'm not going to run for Congress. And why did I want to run for Congress? Because I wanted to champion certain types of legislation. John Conyers had his Medicare for All bill, H.R. 676. I was probably one of the few people in 2010, who had actually read the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, PPACA, when it was a 256-page bill. By the time it passed, it had ballooned into a 1,400-page bill that took three six-inch notebooks or nine-inch notebooks to hold the darn thing. So I realized I don't need to be elected to go to the Hill and present legislation that I believe will be very helpful to people. I don't need to be elected. I can just do that as a regular old citizen. So it was at that point that I became a self-appointed citizen lobbyist. Nobody paid me. I did the research, found legislation that I liked and I believed in, wrote one page, very short, simplistic letters as to why members of Congress should support it. And then when we got out of that legislative section, and went into the next one, I looked at everybody that had been a co-sponsor that time and in the past, and then on my own, developed my own whip list, and then eventually made this very, very efficient. I had a huge database. Every member of, of Congress the legislation that they sponsored and worked supporting. Yes, they had that list online, but with my database, I could cross-reference who was on what bill and generate reports and auto-generate my whip list. 
So what was your involvement with progressive Democrats then? Progressive Democrats was one of the first organizations who endorsed my candidacy. And I had become active with them, signing petitions. And they had, in 2010, started this whole lobbying campaign where they wanted local people to go to the local offices of their members of Congress. They had a ridiculous name. They were calling them brown bag lunch vigils. And I was like, there's no brown bag. And it's not a vigil. The only thing true in this name is that it's generally at lunch. (laughs) So so let's get people to take a seriously name. And they ended up calling it Educate Congress. So from about 2011 to 2014, when I started my C4 People Demanding Action, I wrote the letter that people were going to deliver on the Hill every month. I trained people on what were the salient points of the legislation, what questions people might ask, and then what answers they needed to give. And by 2012, I was writing a Democratic version of the letter and a Republican version of the letter. And by late 2012, early 2013, we are now embroiled in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And I had the opportunity to be one of the leaders in building the coalition that fought that legislation. Why did you start a C4? Progressive Democrats was a political action committee. Political action committees Their job is really to endorse candidates and or issues, not lobby. So since I was really onto the lobbying thing, I wanted to have an organization where its very nature was. It could do advocacy literally as much as it wanted. What was the highlight for you with People Demanding Action? The highlight with People Demanding Action was the work that we did on removing the ratification deadline from the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, my father was a union leader. My mother was a union member. From the time that I was 11 years old, I had worked not all that willingly in the beginning with my mother on ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment. And again, my mother would say to me, well, women, we are superior to men. Legally, we will settle for equality. (laughs) All right. My mother was a wild person. She was an absolute wild person. So frustrating that that didn't make it all the way. Well, it did. It did. When I started, a couple of activists from Ohio reached out to me. They had a WhiteHouse.gov petition, and they were 6,000 signatures short. 
They wanted President Obama to basically come out and say he was in support of removing the ratification deadline from the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, there were two paths back in 2013. Path one, which was the one that everybody was on, was completely start all over again, pass the bill through Congress, go out and get 38 states to ratify. The other path, which there were very few people that supported it. When I came on, there were only 37 co-sponsors, was remove the ratification deadline and then just get three more states. And I was like, well, the math is easy. Three is less than 38. So I'm going for the three. I got 15 states. I only need three of them. I live in Virginia. Virginia is unratified. Virginia will be one. Illinois was unratified. I'm from Illinois. I still had contacts back there. And Nevada was unratified. And I had met a very, very wonderful young activist from Nevada named Johnny Johnson, who, when he learned about the Equal Rights Amendment as the youngest of seven children of a single mom, He said, if this had been in effect, he said, I cannot think of the difference this might have made in our lives growing up. So when I said I wish it had gone through, I wasn't really speaking about opening the ratification window. I was speaking of the actual amendment itself passing, which we're still short on. No, we're not. Nevada ratified in 2017, Illinois ratified in 2018, and I made the closing arguments in Virginia in 2020, and Virginia ratified. The Equal Rights Amendment has not been published by the archivist because former president, who shall not be named, wrote a letter to the archivist and told the archivist not to publish the Equal Rights Amendment, which was huge overstep by the executive office. Because once an amendment is signed by Congress and the president, now ratification is purely in the hands of the states. So what do you think is the prospects for that to be published? Well, there's a lot of work that's going on to have it published President Biden is kind of going, all right, if we accept that your argument that the last president demanding that they not publish it is executive overreach, then my demanding that they publish is equally executive overreach. Yeah, I I get it. So- it's, it seems like your main thing right now is Center for Common Ground. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Tell yes. me about the founding story of that. 2016, the NAACP hires 21 civic engagement coordinators to basically do GOTV. Turns out I was probably the only one that knew a lot about GOTV because I had grown up with it. And we were turning out Black voters 
who didn't vote. Well, my understanding of why people didn't vote was normally it was an information and or transportation issue. Don't know where to vote, don't know when to vote, don't have a way to get there. So once you remove those barriers, okay, now people are going to be willing to vote. So I brought all the stuff I had learned growing up with my dad on election night to how I was going to do GOTV. Also remember when I went back to teaching adults at the college level, I was teaching IT. So I knew the power of digital. So where most people would go into NGP van, they would print out their list. And many people believed you couldn't enter the data back into van. That was how poor their training had been. I was like, "Uh uh-uh, no. We're doing everything digital. Digital phone banks. We got people who were making calls. We established a system where people needed a ride to the polls. We would give people a ride to the polls. Virginia was the only one of the 21 states in 2016 that won. At that point, I knew what people are missing parties, candidates. They really don't go after Black voters who don't consistently vote. They're like that bad date on college, the one who only wants to go out with the sure thing. It's like, ooh, do you really want to hang out with that guy or that gal? No, you don't. Ooh, no. So 2017, I realized I still had access to NGP van. Called my contact and said, can I work on the Virginia election? And they're like, we're not going to give you any money. I didn't ask for any money. I just said, can I use this tool that I have to do GOTV on the Virginia election? And they're like, we don't care. So we did GOTV on the Virginia election. At the end of the day, we win 14 out of 15 seats and we lost seat number 15 by one vote. So in Virginia, whenever people foolishly utter the lines, my vote doesn't matter. It's like the hackles go up. In Virginia, we lost control of the Virginia House of Delegates by one vote. Would you have been that vote? You're like, what? So, yeah. And then there was another interesting little race in 2017. Special election, Alabama. So, called my contact and said, could we have access to the Alabama data? They reached out to the Alabama NAHCP president And I told him what I wanted to do and what we had done in Virginia, that I had volunteers standing by. And he was like, okay. And we all know what happened in Alabama, December 10th, 2017. And by that point, I'm 
hooked. I love doing elections. So I basically retire from my corporate gig where I'm teaching emergency management IT and I'm just doing elections. So we did Virginia in 2018. We did Georgia in 2018. And it was at that point that I decided I don't want to be a C4 because people keep wanting us to endorse them. So we became a 501c3 to pretty much end that. And that was the birth of Center for Common Ground as a 501c3. And we have all we do now. Well, we do elections. So 2018, we did Virginia and Georgia. 2019, Virginia, all by itself took the Virginia House and got an extra seat in the Virginia Senate. And again, why did we do that? Because we wanted to get Virginia in a position where Virginia would ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. That was totally our thinking. I noticed that you have grown it to have a pretty sizable budget and a lot of different programs. Tell me about like what it took to build it up as an organization and what are the things that you've done that you're most proud of? The democracy centers are what we are most proud of. 2016, all the way up through 2019, we are a virtual organization. I had done outreach to people in the bluest parts of California, San Francisco, the northern part of Silicon Valley, where nobody who was running for office in those districts really needed their volunteer help. And one of the things that I explained is, if you want to win presidential elections, California can have 53 blue seats, and that does not help you in the electoral college. You are going to have to turn some of these red states blue. I mean, it's the law of numbers. Again, I am pragmatic. I am looking at Alabama. Alabama is 41.5% Black Indigenous people of color. Georgia is nearly 39%. Florida and Texas are both 55, and Louisiana is 54, and that is registered voters. I look at registered voters that are not voting as this is the opportunity to win the election because these are the extra votes. All about numbers, baby. It is all about numbers. Tell me about what you're up to in this midterm election. Well, in this midterm election, we have 12 democracy centers that have been in existence for about a year. What's a democracy center? Instead of being remote, it's hyper-local, and it's in communities where people are registered, they can vote, 
They just don't. So we go in, we find trusted individuals, trusted organizations in the community, and we set up a partnership. They keep doing what they naturally do. Our first democracy center, Hawkinsville, Georgia, African-American History Museum. They provide food delivery once a month. Hawkinsville is a freedman's community, which means it was founded by former slaves. So we partner with folks in Hawkinsville in December, between December and January. So this is December 21st, 2020, is when I did my initial training. January 5th, 2021 is the Georgia runoff. They knocked on 2,400 doors and had 2,100 conversations. That is what local trusted community folks can do. Now we've got three democracy centers in Georgia, one in Florence. There's 16 in Northern Virginia. They're brand new. And I never expected to put democracy centers in Northern Virginia. We have one in Roanoke, one in Lynchburg, Virginia Beach, Norfolk, and then there's one in Richmond. Again, I am a numbers nerd. When I followed early voting turnout in 2021, Roanoke had an early voting turnout among Black voters of 18.21%. Fairfax County, 8.55. In what world does Roanoke, Virginia outperform Fairfax County? Well, when you've got local activists on the ground, knocking on the door, saying, hey, I'm Zeta, I live over on Caitlin Street, showing people, yeah, hey, I'm from the same hood you are, whatever you're experiencing, I'm experiencing the same thing. Can I talk to you about what's going on in our neighborhood? And then they hold up a palm card that's got issues that local people in the community have said, this this is what we want to fix. See that issue number two, gun violence? I added that issue. Can we talk about what's going on in our community? Who is not going to talk to Zeta? There are a lot of organizations in Virginia and some of the states that you work that do overlapping things. How do you collaborate or compete or work alongside partner with them. New Virginia Majority, I'm aware of, or groups like that, they they do some similar things. How do you think about that? Well, let me go to Georgia first. Um, in Georgia, the Atlanta NAACP came up with the idea that what they needed to win elections in Georgia, and this is after Stacey Abrams' loss, is the organizations in Georgia need to be a coalition work together and then share the work as opposed to competing, where they would say on any given Saturday, you've got one group on one part of the Walmart parking lot trying to register voters and another group on the other side of the Walmart parking lot. And it's like, you know, whoa, wait a minute. We need to come up with a plan where 
where do we want to go and register voters and who's going to go to these places? So Georgia formed Team Unity and they invited us in because, well, it's not your company anymore. So hopefully I won't break your heart. We brought in another digital solution, PDI. And we brought that in mainly because we do texting and PDI, they buy new cell numbers every 90 days. So when we look at the number of cell numbers in NGP van versus PDI, it was like, wow, we've got eight times the number of cell numbers because they constantly keep putting new cell numbers in their system. Well, the van system just houses data that's built by other vendors, whereas PDI also sells data. And then as a C3, churches can partner with us. So that meant at the end of 2020, we had amassed 44,000 volunteers. If you could communicate to the other people in this business what you think they should change about how they go about politics, about get out the vote, about registration, about winning, what would you, what would you tell them? What do you think people are doing wrong that they could learn from you right. and from others? Voter registration. There are only four states that don't have early voting. When we look at the early voting turnout among voters, it is in the toilet. It's somewhere between 1.7% at a high and 0.5% at a low. Make sure that newly registered voters know and understand about early voting. So those are numbers that I see, and they're really bad. Number two, get out the vote isn't about how cute can you make your GOTV door hanger. Where? is the beef. Where is the information that the voters need? Early voting is wonderful, but it's only on the internet. You don't get a card from your registrar saying, hi, here are all the early voting locations that we're running for this election. If you are too old, too poor, don't have broadband. You don't know where the early voting locations are. I've spent yesterday and this morning making door hangers. Each county I'm listing, here is where your early voting locations are. I have a photograph of the vote writer. This is what you need to bring for ID. And here is the phone number of your county registrar. That, and this is what I learned from my uncles, you've got to make sure that everybody has equal information. So we can see in Georgia and in Virginia, the places where we have postcarded and we have texted and we are phone banking, the early voting turnout in those counties is significantly higher than in the counties where we didn't. And then also voting is sales. 
Don't go and give voters your reasons of why they need to vote for your candidate. Talk to voters and ask them what they need and what's important to them. And when you talk to them via postcard, via text message, via phone bank, remind them that this is what they said they wanted. That makes sense. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have? I don't think so. This has been so much fun. I hope you've had fun. I definitely have. You are a character, and I am sure you're very effective with the skills (laughs) that you've built. So it's very fun to talk to you. Is there anything else you want to say? Well, I have really high hopes for this 2022 election and looking at the Georgia turnout, the Virginia turnout. It's looking very, very, very good. I am glad to hear that because I am very worried about this midterm. That was Andrea Miller. She's at centerforcommonground.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.